chick flicks, romantic comedies, rom-coms. You love them, you hate them, but we are here to eviscerate them. Welcome to the Rom-Com Killjoys podcast. We are your hosts, Eliza Bertrand and Janelle Walker. Now, let's get on with some feminist joy killing. Do you hear those bells jingling in the distance? That's right, folks. It's December, which means it is once again Christmas month here on Rom-Com Killjoys. A very Netflix Christmas. A very Netflix Christmas. And we are starting things off right with Netflix's banner Christmas movie of the season. Um, So if you have tuned into Netflix at all and ever watch any romantic comedies on it, you have probably been getting ads for this for weeks. Yes, we certainly have. We could not wait one more second to find out what is going on up in Scotland. So join us for a little Highland getaway. You know, when the trailers for this first came out, uh, Eliza and I discussed that we were very concerned that Carrie Elway's Scottish accent would leave much to be desired. And I have to say, it only left some things to be desired. Yeah, I think the trailer did get, like, the worst moments of his Scottish accent, and possibly the worst moments of the movie. I I think that the trailer actually on this movie is going to get a lower rating than what I will actually give the movie. Should we dive right into it? Let's dive in. Janelle, do you have a summary for us? God knows. If you're a longtime listener of the show, you know that the bane of our existence are these Netflix plot summaries. But I guess here we go. Are you ready, kids? Aye, aye, Captain. I can't hear you. Aye, aye, Captain. Well, A Castle for Christmas, 2021. To escape a scandal... A best-selling author journeys to Scotland where she falls in love with a castle and faces off with the grumpy duke who owns it. Are you titillated? Are you thrilled? Are you drawn to this particular plot? I know I am. Uh, Eliza, that is what Google says this film is about. But what is A Castle for Christmas really about? Well, from for the perspective of Netflix itself, the, you know, giant media uh, thing controlling our lives. This movie is about having a Christmas movie with some star names attached to it. They got Brooke Shields and Carrie Elwes, and so they were like, yay, people will watch the movie. That's what it's about. Um, But I think the movie itself is actually about something a little more genuine than that. It's sort of about the, the importance of being open to new possibilities in your life and to new things that might bring you joy, which, I mean, is a very saccharine message, but as a Christmas message, I think it works quite well. Yeah, I think it's I, I think that that's that's right on point, Eliza. I think it's fine. I I wish that the themes of the film fit a little bit better with Christmas. Mm-hmm. This is an example that I've noticed with some of our Christmas rom-coms where, you know, in terms of like knowing about back-end uh, Hollywood politics, you kind of wonder if somebody had this script in their back pocket as like a good old-fashioned rom-com and then they realized that if they put Christmas in it, it could be more marketable because I think between Lifetime Hallmark and Netflix, something like 150 major studio Christmas rom-coms get made every season. So Yeah. Um, yeah, this one definitely felt like it could have worked without the Christmas element. Um, and the Christmas element that got added in was the bit that felt the most sort of like these cheesy Christmas movies that we love talking about so much. You know, there's this sort of like, oh, and by the way, there's a local legend about people who got married on Christmas. 
hundreds of years ago. So we'll have a party on Christmas. But we'll invite the whole town. You know, it felt very like spirit of Christmas or princess for Christmas or that kind of thing. Whereas the rest of the movie, while it still feels like a cheesy rom-com, didn't have that like really sort of in your face Christmassy feel um, that a lot of those other movies have. So I do feel like that could have been maybe slotted in after the initial script was written. It does. And and I think that like, like you said, I mean, apart from that sort of Christmas uh, uh, force measure, I would say that the themes of the film are, they're sort of, they're sort of nice. You know, we're looking at a couple that are in their fifties, maybe even their sixties, both of whom are divorced, both of whom uh, their marriage is ended due to sort of, uh, their role in society, right? An elevated role in society where they had these sort of social climber or just generally superficial partners. Um, and I think that it's kind of interesting that they sort of move away from those marriages to a relationship that is not not about society and stature <laughs> and money and society. So I had a lot of questions about like what we're supposed to get from that turn Although Brooke Shields' character in this, who she plays an author, a best-selling author, I do appreciate that sort of her motivation to do it is she wants to return to her, the what inspired her to write in the first place, which is her father's childhood in Scotland, right? Mm-hmm. And that part of it feels very nice. You know, you sort of return to your roots, and there you find love. Like, that's all fine. Do these thematic puzzle pieces fit together exactly? Uh, no, especially because, as you said, Eliza... There is this legend about people historically getting married on Christmas, but uh, the only person who ends up getting married on Christmas is uh, a guy we don't see. It's her ex-husband. Yeah, I kept sort of wondering if there was going to be a, like, far too soon proposal um, from Carrie Elwes' character on Christmas or anything like that. And they didn't go quite that wild. They didn't go that crazy. But if they're not going to do that, then setting it up felt a little bit of a letdown. It was a little like a, you know, sort of Chekhov's gun that in the end, they just sort of like, remember is there and then quickly put away <laughs> rather than shooting, which is what you're supposed yeah. to do with a Chekhov's gun. Um, <laughs> so it was one of those things. I, I hesitate to say I wanted this bad Christmas rom-com to be worse, but I did almost want it to like go there. Um, but at the same time, the fact that it didn't is sort of what is what made it more believable and made you want to kind of buy the story a bit more. So it, I don't know, folks, if you watched it, let us know. Do you think they should have gone for the crazy, you know, run through the airport type ending? Or did this work for you? Personally, I found the ending to be very charming. Like I kind of like I liked in terms of writing that it didn't end up where like they were married (laughs) or like even that there is this big declaration of like we're soulmates or anything like that. Like that's kind of nice. It's kind of refreshing. Mm -hmm. But yeah, maybe maybe that's the problem. Maybe my problem is that my generic expectations are too high. I'm like, no. No, no, no. If you are going to give me all of these rom-com setups, you have to pull the trigger in the end. Because, like you said. But it, but it's interesting because the movie itself even sort of lampshades how obvious their ultimate pairing is, mm-hmm. which is sort of interesting, right? Like it kind of acknowledges throughout. There's so many jokes, for example, where someone will, like Brooke Shields' character, for example, will say something like, well, we have been decorating the castle for Christmas. Not that there is a we. <laughs> And then she almost sort of John Krasinski looks into the camera. Right. Like, <laughs> and like way before there's been any actual flirting between the two of them. Like it makes sense halfway through when they've started being like, oh my God, maybe they're going to sleep together. But at the beginning when like no one would interpret it that way. Right. Exactly. Like it's just, it was very self-aware in that way. So 
I, I don't think that the ending was terribly self-aware, but it had the potential to be. So mm-hmm. that's kind of that's kind of intriguing. Well, and the other thing is, you know, especially as we're talking about sort of the ending here at the beginning of our discussion, so many of these movies, we've talked about how the story is just sort of ridiculous and the ending doesn't make sense and this kind of like, you know, whatever it is. She's a American baker and he's a British prince. Like, how are they going to have a life together? Or, you know, that kind of thing. This story actually seemed really plausible like yes it seems like a you know sort of cheesy romance story but she's a fairly successful writer with some renown who's you know used to some of the nicer things in life but also kind of used to toughing it out he's a scottish duke which in today's day and age frequently means kind of what we saw in this movie which is someone who has a title and has inherited some land but doesn't really have any money or power anymore and is doing the best they can to hold on to it they talk about things like him you know holding weddings at the venue him turning the farm into like a working farm again so they can you know sell crops and food those things are all pretty normal so he's also someone who's got like some wealth and power but also some need to like really do the work for himself and so the two of them are kind of on equal footing they you know if they're trying to sell the castle as more of a like destination wedding kind of place having had a late in life romance between a duke and a romance writer is like a really good story to sell the castle as a wedding venue Um, they've befriended everyone in town who's clearly involved in the upkeep, like all those kind of things, you know, it's sort of got a modern Downton Abbey sort of feel of like, yeah, if you were going to keep this franchise, this entity going, like this is what you'd have to do. So it didn't seem so crazy to think they might pull that off. The the pairing feels very logical in a way. It's almost like economical in a sense. (laughs) I don't know. Like it all, it all kind of comes together. They all get what they want out of it. Is that terribly romantic? No. But it works. It, you know, it's not anti-romantic. And, you know, he no, flies her fine. daughter in for the last minute. Yes. And all the townspeople come together to throw the party. You know, like, it's got all those elements. It's just all far more subdued than I think I was expecting. Yeah, yeah. It sort of feels like it pitches the middle a little bit. Mm-hmm. Like, it wasn't quite good enough to be a genuinely enjoyable kind of swept away romantic watch, which I feel like actually I kept thinking... I mean, friend of the show, Kate Kearns, should comment on this. I feel like this idea could make a really great book. Mm -hmm. But there's just something about the action of it that didn't feel terribly cinematic. And maybe it's because, like, there's not a whole lot of conflict between the two of them. Like, the one conflict (laughs) that gets brought up that they have to overcome is that she, what, she wants to buy his castle... And he kind of resents her for that. And then eventually she says, like, well, you should stay in the castle with me. And he gets annoyed that that's how she put it. That's not a terribly big conflict to be our kind of act three conflict, right? No, really, the main conflict is just that he's conflicted about the fact that he hasn't been able to maintain the property, you know, the way that he's supposed to as the Duke and the owner of the property. And I feel like you're right in a book that would be a lot of great mental conflict, but it's harder to show just through dialogue or action. And they don't go mm-hmm. over the board overboard with that kind of thing. And so you don't see as much of it, which makes it a little less interesting. I also was thinking, you know, we've talked about these sort of travel vacation romances in the past. And I feel like this kind of fits into that category. But again, they didn't lean into it really hard. There's this sort of one montage scene where... 
he's showing her around the grounds and a bit of the town and then by the end they end up back at like the pub and so they drive by some cows and they drive by some sheep and they look at a nice outlook and they drive through the town and like it's very lovely and scenic and they're like oh look at scotland it's green but that's really the only moment they do that and i feel like there should have mm-hmm. been more of that when she first gets there before she's even met him instead they kind of take her just right to the hotel um there should have been more of that in the end as like they've you know had the the successful like they come back together and then they literally put them on horses to ride from the inn back to the castle where they're having this christmas party and then don't show them like riding on horses through the snow-covered woods like that would have been a great moment so romantic there and you know he's in a kilt and she's in a beautiful dress like Instead, they're just sort of like, oh, but now they're back at the castle. You know, it. I wanted it to be more indulgent. Yes, yes. That's a really good word for it. I kind of wanted it to be more indulgent, too. It's a very light touch, the whole, the whole film. I mean, like, the moments of indulgence that felt a little over the top were really fun. Like, I think the ball gown that they have, <laughs> Brooke Shields wear, is fabulous. Amazing. Great touch. Incredible. Amazing touch. And I mean, you know, nothing like a former supermodel to really, you know, haute couture up your uh, Netflix Christmas rom-com. Um, and I loved the romantic scene they had when she was sort of spilling out of it in the hallway. Like that was very indulgent. But I also found that the moments of sort of quirky Scottish town <laughs> indulgence were also a little out of place. Like for example, when she gets off the plane in Edinburgh, she's being picked up by the taxi drivers taking her to the small town and he's uh, indecipherable, right? But she's sort of, like, rude about it. Like, she's not even trying. And it's funny because, like, that should be sort of an over-the-top moment of, like, telephone, of miscommunication. But instead, she's just sort of like, oh, no. She literally says, no. <laughs> right. No. And then it's just kind of, you see the taxi driver a few other times, and he's no longer indecipherable. Like, that could have been a good running gag. Yeah, exactly. Um, one of the things I really did like when it comes to the sort of small town Scottish whatnot, and the thing I think, I mean, in general, I was surprised by how much I enjoyed Brooke Shields in this. I was prepared to get on oh, yes. um, today with you and just like completely pan everything having to do with her. And actually, I think she was having a really good time. Um, but oh yeah, one of the things is that she arrives and she stays at this like local inn that's attached to the pub, and the inn owner has a knitting group that knits in the pub who are all like from the town and Brooke Shields's character immediately befriends the knitting group which is adorable and like quirky and silly and you know they've all got great Scottish accents and whatever but they maintain a genuine friendship through the whole movie um wonderfully as the movie goes on she is wearing more and more knitted things which is such a good detail. She like keeps adding knitted scarves to her collection. And <laughs> which is a very nice touch from the costume department. Well done. Right, like you. and they don't look professional. They look like someone's grandma knit them. Like it's little things like that that are just they were very sweet in a way I was not expecting and I really liked. I liked that the knitting group like came together to help her <laughs> in her time of need. Yeah, like that's that's one of those details that you just sort of let wash over you, right? You're just like, okay. Like, this has nothing to do with anything, but fuck it. It's so charming. They, like, yarn bomb 
uh, a phone booth, <laughs> which fuck it. You know, why not? It's Christmas. Enjoy it. It's silly. And the coat that they give her at the end, the knitted coat, Eliza. <laughs> it's fabulous. It's like a, it's got like a Joseph and the Amazing Technicolor dream coat kind of vibe in that it's got just like patches and patches and patches of knitted pieces. Like it's not a pretty coat. No. But it's fantastic. And they also, they come and help her like fix up her bedroom that he's given her the shittiest bedroom in the castle to try to like get her to leave. And they come to, you know, help fix it up. And I think they actually bring like some lamps and nice furniture and stuff, but they also cover every surface with knitted stuff she's got like a knitted blanket on the bed and they've got a little knitted throw over the side table and they've like hung more scarves on her you know coat hook like it's just it's silly and i appreciated the silly that they chose a thing and they like went for it it really literalizes i think something that i always feel about these movies which is that they are trying to capture the affect of being cozied up on your couch Mm. in front of a roaring fireplace with your cozy socks on and, you know, either an an alcoholic beverage, a hot chocolate or both. And I I think that that knitting, like the constant presence of knitwear, it it is just sort of like bringing that to us directly. You know, it's sort of like a very literal manifestation of the subtext of these films, which is interesting. And I'm sure someone somewhere in a really obscure academic journal will write about that someday, but that person is not me. So, you know, if you're out there, tell us what you think. No, I totally agree with you though, Janelle. Like it definitely, this movie had that vibe. It was like, it's going to be Scotland. There's going to be nice, happy faces. There's going to be lots of knitted things. They're going to keep going back to the, you know, very cozy looking bar in order to listen to some music and like drink some scotch. It felt like what you want to feel like when you're just, you know, cozying up on the couch to watch a stupid Netflix movie. And I feel like it knew what it yeah. was and did it in a way that I really appreciated, as opposed to a lot of these movies that we've talked about where it knows what it is and in pursuing that just kind of doesn't try. Right. They're not they're not leaving it. Uh, I think the way that we described it with uh, The Princess Switch was it, it, it's not leaving an empty shell of a movie. Right. Like there there is genuine like heart to this film. And mostly I think that's due to the performances. They're very lived in performances all around. The ensemble is good. Carrie Elways and Brooke Shields are quite good in this. Yeah. I have to say. I, I, I think maybe that's the secret. <laughs> yeah, I have to say, and I I feel terrible saying this, and I feel like people are going to skewer me, but I think Carrie Elwes may have been one of my least favorite parts of this movie. <gasps> Ooh, tell and, us. Like, tell look, us the okay, truth, Eliza. Carrie Elwes is it. not 26 anymore, right? Like, I'm not expecting him to be Wesley from The Princess Bride or, you know, Robin from Robin Hood Men in Tights. But, like, this is Carrie Elwes. First of all, he is a comedic genius. And second of all, this man can be suave as fuck right like those are the two skill sets that he is bringing to the table and anyone who's seen like his um repeated appearances on the tv show psych know that he can pull that off in a lot of different environments at any age you know and i they gave him this character who's very sort of stern and stuffy but i wanted to see the switch where he really switches out of that and like turns on the carrie elwis charm And I just didn't feel like they gave him enough room to do that. You know, when the two of them really start bonding and having these moments of sexual tension, I feel like they didn't, I don't know, didn't lean into them enough or didn't let him Mm. take the reins enough. A lot of it was her making the moves, which like totally cool with. But I just felt like there were these moments that really could have, you know, when she's sort of running down the hall half in this dress that she's been trying on late at night and he opens the door and they have this moment of like oh, I, mm, mm, what's happening? And then they have like the big kiss and the big first night. 
he doesn't really say anything. He's sort of like, I'm, he basically kind of apologizes for having been grumpy. And then like they kiss and move into his bedroom. And like, that would have been the moment for a great, like Wesley-esque romantic line, like a great bedroom line. And they didn't give it to him. Mm. And then when there's like various hijinks happening, they didn't let him be funny enough. Like, it's not that at any point I thought he was bad in the movie other than a few weird moments with the accent. But I just was like, you've been given Carrie Elwes. Use him. Yeah, he's very stodgy, like this role. And I think that that is part of why the Act 3 conflict doesn't work Mm -hmm. is because his sort of stodginess leaves us cold. Like, we don't really, we don't really feel as aligned with his perspective about, you know, caring for this property and feeling like it's the one thing in his life that he has, Mm -hmm. right? Like, he just feels very curmudgeonly about that rather than someone who is you know truly torn between a dear affection for this woman and uh you know a vested interest in this land Mm -hmm. you know it just sort of feels like when he starts yelling at her about like oh you came in here and i wish you'd never come around you're like well i guess he was an (laughs) asshole the whole time we knew right Yeah, well, and I also feel like there are these little moments where he does things that she finds really endearing. You know, when they go on this sort of trip around town, they're driving, they run into a bunch of cows, a bunch of um, Highland coos um, who are in the road. And he makes some throwaway comment about, like, morning traffic. And she's sort of so shocked that he made a joke that she finds it really funny because up to this point, he's been so straightforward with her. And I was like, okay, cool. Like, now we're going to see that he has a sense of humor. And he kind of doesn't make any more jokes after that, you know, and and <laughs> comedy is hard to write and that's not what these movies are about. But I feel like they could have tried a little bit to put like some, a few additional little zingers in there. So you were like, okay, like he's a hard shell to crack, but he's pretty funny underneath it. Or like he's sarcastic. That's how he shows his affection, you know, something, you know, so as, as with so many of these movies, I think just like one more good pass at the script could have really upped it to the next level. Yeah, I think so. Especially because, you know, Brooke Shields uh, brings a good amount of levity to her performances. You know, she doesn't really have like a bunch of zingers, but she's, she's giving it like a good sort of go with being, uh, quirky in a fun way. Like there's a scene where she's like sneaking off into a forbidden part of the castle. And there's the scene where she's like trying to get a cup of tea and she walks in on him bathing. Like all of those bits sort of work as mm-hmm. comedy, even though they're not like hilarious in any, in any way. But yeah, she's, she's at least giving it a go. And I don't know that Gary Ellis is, is maybe it's because he's such a gifted comedic mm-hmm. actor that it feels like, Right. He's not taking the material that direction. Yeah, it's possible that the expectations I came into this movie with really affected my understanding of their two performances. Because again, I was really not expecting to be impressed by Brooke Shields. And so, and it sucks that this is the truth, but the fact that this, you know, sort of former, like, absolute top supermodel was letting herself be goofy and be kind of yeah. kind of schlumpy like she was in just like yoga pants for most of it and she was letting herself be a little awkward and I was so kind of thrilled to see that that I think I was very impressed more so than I would have been had I been expecting her to be a comedian you know and then you've got mm-hmm. Carrie Elwes who I've been in love with my entire life and like this was a perfectly oh God, fine yes. performance from him so you know I'm not gonna be blown away because he set the bar too high too early. I, I, I'm I'm sad for the performance that could have been, but you know, we always have Wesley. We always have Wesley. 
And like, what is that? What does that say about our own preconceived notions that Brooke Shields just like allowing herself to be goofy through me so much? Well, yeah, I mean, I think there is something to be said for that. Like we, I mean, on the on the one hand, we don't always expect like conventionally beautiful women to be funny. Mm-hmm. Like there is this sense that funny women are not also hot, mm-hmm. which is definitely not true. But then also there's this thing that happens as we've talked about a lot where our romantic leads in rom-coms especially the women tend to be funny and bumbling Mm -hmm. just by nature just sort of as a default so it's sort of jarring to see those two needs clash right like we sort of have a need to see Brooke Shields as like effortless and perfect because she is literally a model Um, but we also need to see our rom-com women leads be sort of uh, falling apart in a charming, mm-hmm. bumbling, and funny way. So, so yeah, I mean, maybe that's the question too. It's our preconceived notions, but it's also about like why do we, why do we have these demands on these roles mm-hmm. in the first place? Well, and the other thing is, I I think that we have a very sort of accepted language of these rom com heroines, these rom com you know protagonist female characters that we know is ridiculous but like we've just sort of accepted as part of it i was thinking when she gets to scotland and she hands off her luggage to the driver she literally just had a carry-on bag and i snorted out loud i was like yeah she only brought a carry-on bag and we are about to see i guarantee you like seven different coats and 80 different high fashion Mm -hmm. boots and she's gonna be chic and marvelous the whole time and we're just supposed to not question that whatsoever And first of all, she's not really, I mean, she looks great, of course, and she's not like wearing dirty, crumpled up clothes, but she is just kind of in yoga pants and like one overcoat for most of the movie until she's clearly been there for a while. And it is assumed probably either bought more clothes or had more clothes shipped to her because she's been there for several months. Um, And then, in fact, when she's moving from the inn into the castle, she has a different suitcase, (laughs) which is larger. Oh, my. Which I noticed and I was like, okay. Either she's bought more clothes and a new suitcase while there, or they just were suddenly like, oh, no, it would be ridiculous for her to only have one thing of carry-on luggage. That's obviously insane. (laughs) So that I was just amused by, and it was, you know, I don't know, maybe a little, like, continuity issue. But also, again, I was expecting her to have what I've seen in a lot of these sort of Netflix Hallmark Lifetime-style Christmas movies, this sort of busy businesswoman fashionable look even in the small town and she really didn't she was wearing sneakers and like joggers you know and yeah that's so nice to see because we've just come to expect that like the girl's hair will be perfect and her jacket will be perfect and her gloves will match her scarf and her boots will be flawless and blah 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 and the guy will be like in a plaid shirt and those are the only options (laughs) So even slight deviation from that feels like a real leap. Well, and in that way, although we don't necessarily want to support the like British monarchy at Balmoral look, I mean, <laughs> I will give it to Carrie always that he is he is rocking a solid landed gentry uh, look in this film. So kudos <laughs> to that. He looks pretty sharp. He does, especially at the kilt end there. The kilt look is excellent. Yeah, I think uh I think we can we can all appreciate Carrie Always in a in a in a kilt, I think. Yeah, we right? we should have Am more right? Carrie Always in a kilt. That's that's what we demand here at Romcom Killjoys. I think that's really what a castle for Christmas is really about. You know, it's really about Carrie Always in a kilt 
more often. Thank you. <laughs> You're here. <laughs> now, Janelle, I do have a question for you. What do you think about yes. the angle this movie takes that it is about an older couple? I mean, I think that that's lovely. I think that also what's cool is that we're seeing a lot more of that now that, you know, we've got these three sort of juggernauts of rom-com production going right now, you know, Netflix and... Hallmark and Lifetime and then all the other streaming services are getting in on this too. I know Hulu is now starting to produce its own independent mm-hmm. uh, films. Uh, I, I think it's great to see a diversity of love stories in rom-coms. I love seeing older couples especially. What I don't love about how it's handled in this film though, however, is that it doesn't necessarily address age per se mm-hmm. as much as it addresses being divorced. Mm. Which can happen, you know, at, at any adult age. Right. So I do kind of wish that there was more of a sense of this, like, well, you know, we're older and we know things about love and we know that life is complicated and we know that, uh, you know, Christmases come and go, you know, like there or something like that, mm-hmm. you know? I don't know. What do you think? Yeah, no, I have to agree with you. I mean, I think there were little bits and pieces of it there, but again, this movie is pretty light, so I didn't want to get too deep into it. Um, but it was the sort of like they acknowledged that she was recently divorced. They acknowledged that he had been less recently divorced. And then they sort of moved on. And it was like, well, there's a lot of experience there that you two could bond over or discuss or could inform your decisions moving forward. And I didn't feel like there was enough characterization that it actually informed any of their decisions beyond just like, I have to leave America for a while, um, which is not, you know, how every woman handles a divorce, despite what most romantic comedies would lead you to believe. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, I definitely feel like there there could have been more to it and it would have been nice to see. The places where I did feel like that came out is, oddly enough, Brooke Shields being the sort of manic pixie dream girl who kind of comes to town and befriends everyone actually felt more true to me because she was older. Like I felt like she was mm-hmm. the kind of person who would feel comfortable just striking up conversation with the locals and who you know, knew enough about herself to know, like, no, I do want to move here. I better, like, set down some roots in a way that I think doesn't always feel true to me when it's, like, a 23-year-old. Because I'm like, mm. if she's coming to the small town to, like, see her parents, she's not chatting with everyone in the town store. Right? <laughs> yeah, that's very true. That's so true. Like, you could feel the sort of wealth of her experience and her work yeah. and the fact that she was a mother and she raised an adult daughter right you know? she mothered well and they too. they gave a few sort of small details about her past um you know they said that you know she had come from more humble beginnings and that when she was a kid she had lived right next to or right over a hair salon and so she'd worked at the hair salon for a while and so then she was like doing everyone's hair which was those were cute touches that i felt like fit with the person she was like i could believe that that's who she was when she was younger versus kind of what she's yeah. become now. You know, so I mean, it again, I think this had more thought to it than a lot of the Christmas rom-coms we've watched and talked about, but it still didn't, you know, it wasn't like wholly complete. Yeah, I would agree. Like I think you know, the thing is, just like with any Christmas rom-com, there's a heavy lift in this script. They have to do so mm-hmm. many things, right? It has to be a Christmas movie, it has to be a rom-com. And then, you know, to take on other themes like love and age and, you know, reckoning with your humble beginnings uh, when you are confronted with a romantic relationship with someone who is literally fucking landed gendery. You know, it's a lot it's a lot to, 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 ca- to carry. And 
And I think that that's why it's fun to ask the questions that you're asking, Eliza, is that we can kind of pay attention to these small details where we can see them trying to knit these things together, whether or not they're successful at it. And again, ultimately, this did feel more grounded in reality than a lot of the other, you know, this is, is structurally a sort of princess Christmas movie, which we've obviously talked about extensively on the show. But this didn't feel yes. like one of those because it didn't actually feel like a fantasy. It felt like, you know, someone's personal fantasy, but not like it existed in a fantasy world of like princes and princesses from imaginary lands that all end in Ovia. You know, this just sort of felt like a, a, a rich person's story, but a plausible one. Yeah, I don't know what it says about me and my class background, but weirdly I kept thinking like, this seems plausible to me. Sure. Yeah, totally. I could see this. Yeah, like I, I, maybe that was another thing about this that I want to see more. You know, I want to see a reel in the words of RuPaul's Drag Race. Like, give me a Christmas fantasia. Like, if we're going to do Scotland at Christmas, like, give me all of it. Give me ghosts. Give me, you know, uh, kilts. Give me legends. Give me the heart of the warrior. You know, like, what does that mean to her? Do you know what I mean? Like, just go over the top with it. Go full Outlander for me, you know? Yeah, absolutely. In fact, there is a YouTube series that you can find. Um, I can't think of the name of the YouTube series or the woman at the moment, but it is an American woman, probably in her 40s, who met a guy when she was in college who is, I think, like a Viscount or was at the time the son of a Viscount. And they fell in love and got married. And so then she moved to england to like live in his family's castle and similarly to the um castle in this story they have always been trying to find ways to like continue to make money to keep the castle up and so they've got like a whole youtube series where she like talks about the history of the castle and what it's been like learning about like their customs and the different things that they do on the grounds in order to like prepare it for events and to sell you know, crops off to make money and all this kind of stuff. And it's this weird sort of like American Viscountess, you know, something or other. But it's basically this story, right? Like it's not, you know, it's not the 19th century version where some like oil tycoon sells off his daughter to a British duke so that she gets a title and he gets her fortune. It's just like two people of upper middle class status who met while, you know, whatever, at like Oxford and got married, but then have this weird home life. Right. (laughs) Right, exactly. So yeah, so this felt much more like plausible, although, you know, probably not most people experiencing this, but like, yeah, there's somewhere out there where someone has experienced something like this. And because of that, I almost enjoy it more as a fantasy because it feels like that could happen to me. Sure. I Absolutely. Could go on vacation to Scotland and like meet my Duke? Why not? Uh, this is the time every week where we take a break to make our patrons on Patreon and especially our romantic leads who are Bob, Esther, Ian, Trey, and Melissa. Uh, thank you so much. See you at the next Highland Fling. I would go live in a castle with any one of you. If you would like to join us on Patreon, you can go to patreon.com slash romcomkilljoys and get access to some behind-the-scenes stuff, including some fun Christmassy tidbits that'll be coming out later this month. You can also like us on Facebook and Instagram for all of our updates and like us and follow us on all of your favorite podcast apps. All right. Well, Eliza, um, apart from, I guess, going back and watching the entire filmography of Carrie Elway's from the beginning, <laughs> uh, I, I, I wonder if you have some antidotes for this movie that we can solidly say is fine. It's it fine. was fine. 
Um, I think I've got a few suggestions, again, other than just, like, you know, go watch The Princess Bride. Um, first of all, I was sort of thinking the really charming moments of this movie, like all of the moments with the knitting club and at the pub and things like that, were actually reminding me a lot of some of the most charming scenes from the musical Come From Away, which mm. is an absolutely wonderful musical that they filmed a year or two ago, actually, and is now available to stream on Apple TV. Um, and it's it's sort of an odd musical. It's about a strange occurrence that happened because of September 11th when all of the planes were grounded immediately. A bunch of planes were grounded in a small town in Newfoundland in Canada, and the town had to just, like, welcome in 1,500 people or something insane like that for days and days and days until they could all fly away again. And so the musical is about that. And of course, there's some heavy stuff in it because it's dealing with 9-11. But it's mostly about this small sort of quirky town dealing with all of these outsiders and welcoming them in, but also feeling strange about it. And these people not knowing why they're there or what they should do while they're there. And it's very beautiful. It's very lovely. The music's great. The staging is unbelievably phenomenal. Everyone in the cast plays like seven or eight different characters and they're all on stage pretty much the entire time. It's really, it'll blow you away, but it's really charming and it's got a lot of that same sort of fun vibe. Um, those, that area of Canada has a lot of Irish and Scottish immigrants uh, historically and so a lot of the music has those same sort of Celtic um backgrounds and a lot of the culture has that as well so if you liked sort of those parts of this movie go watch come from away and i think you will enjoy it in much the same way it's absolutely phenomenal the other thing is obviously it's christmas so i have to talk about some christmas music um there is an artist who i really love who got his start on youtube whose name is peter hollins who actually first got started doing covers of songs from things like lord of the rings um, and he's got this very great sort of fantasy medieval style vocal thing going on um, and people really loved it and now he's turned it into a whole career. Um, and he has a Christmas album called A Holland's Family Christmas that is really lovely and again has some of those sort of Celtic music influences um, with very sort of haunting chords and beautiful harmonies. It's a lot of fun. It's really lovely. He's got some, you know, great friends who um, join him on some of the songs and it's really wonderful. So that would be my suggestion for this week if you want to listen to some good Christmas music. Elva, I think we're going to be including a lot of Christmas music this month because we both love it. So yes, we do. Get excited. So Janelle, what uh, do you have any Christmassy antidotes for us? I do. I have two such antidotes. Um, the first that I want to recommend is when I was thinking about kind of Christmas romance that uh, includes kind of older uh, romantic people. Um, I immediately thought about the 2015 film Carol, mm. uh, which is, you know, not explicitly a Christmas movie, but it does take place in part during the Christmas season. And it is about an older woman, uh, Carol, played by Kate Blanchett, who sort of falls into a very intense uh, and at the time forbidden queer love affair with uh, Teresa played by uh, Rooney Mara. Uh, it's a beautiful film. It's heartbreaking. It's dark, but it also is just like transcendently beautiful and kind of captures more of the complexity of uh, love and romance that I love in my movies because God forbid I find a movie that is just fun. <laughs> Not for me. No, thank you. 
<laughs> so that's the 2015 film Carol. Um, but really, I wanted to um, recognize um, this week that, uh, you know, we often talk about on the show how Eliza and I are musical theater nerds. We are theater kids at heart. Um, we lost probably the greatest living mm-hmm. uh, musical theater writer um, this week. Stephen Sondheim died um, this week at the age of 91. And uh, he will be dearly missed by everyone in the theater community. But God, he just leaves behind an incredible um, songbook. Uh, and he changed the face of musical theater period. He is the institution of American musical theater. And so to recognize his passing, um, I wanted to recommend a cut song from the musical Gypsy called Three Wishes for Christmas. Mm. It's the only Christmas song that Stephen Sondheim ever wrote. And I just thought that that was too perfect uh, and couldn't pass it up this week. So even if you're a big musical theater fan, you probably haven't heard this song. I hadn't heard it until today. Um, So Give it, a, give it a go. Three Wishes for Christmas, which is a cut song from the musical. Gypsy. Janelle, I have never heard of this song. What? Right? I just found it today and I was like, are you I kidding me? Steven Gypsy. Sondheim has a Christmas song? Wait. Yeah, it's on the 2008 soundtrack. It's a bonus Oh my track. gosh. You know, I don't think I ever listened to the 2008 tra- track. I was too obsessed with both the um, Patty and the Bernadette versions from just a few years before that. Uh, so definitely doing that. And yeah, if you actually want the antidote that is the media I have been consuming this week, then just listen to every cover of Send in the Clowns that exists on oh. the internet and you'll be doing what I'm doing with my time. I just like just thinking about Send in the Clowns makes me cry. <laughs> like I, I actually am so overwhelmed. You can literally right just, just like go to YouTube it. and pull up any cover of it. And the next suggestion will be like Judy Dench singing Send in the Clowns, Carol Burnett singing <laughs> Send in the Clowns. <laughs> <laughs> you know, just Bernard Peters singing set in the clowns. Like just it just you could just do that for hours without ever having to type anything more. Just do like next, next, next. Well I know what I'm doing tonight. <laughs> I'm gonna put on send in the clowns, drink some wine and cry. What a great <laughs> use of your time. Thank you for listening to the Romcom Killjoys podcast. If you liked what you heard, be sure to follow us on Facebook and Instagram. If you'd like to support us further you can become a patron at patreon.com slash romcom killjoys. Our theme song is Lady Slut Hitchhike Love by the band A Giant Dog. And the song you're listening to now is a cover of Baby Love by Colin Langaness. Remember, Killjoys, don't let anyone kill your joy. Not a romcom. Not us. Not anyone. See, See you, you next time. time. Start from kissing and me.